The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf with another podcast. We welcome as our guest today, Blessed Pope John XXIII and his apostolic constitution, Veterum Sapientia, which was issued on the 22nd of February in 1962. This weighty and authoritative papal document concerns the promotion and the study of Latin, and it has been nearly entirely ignored in the five decades since its promulgation, even though it's an apostolic constitution. Let's get right to work. Blessed Pope John chose to promote and promulgate his decrees about the study and the use of Latin by means of an apostolic constitution called Veterum Sapientia. Now, an apostolic constitution is the most authoritative level of decree that popes use. Popes issue constitutions, which are called apostolic, since the pope is the successor of the prince of the apostles, Peter. Councils, however, also issue constitutions. The Second Vatican Council issued their teachings on the liturgy and on the church and on the church in the modern world and on revelation, for example, with constitutions. Uh, you will know the famous constitutions such as Sacrosanctum Concilium and Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes and Dei Verbum. Constitutions are heavy documents that must not be ignored. But that's exactly what happened to Veterum Sapientia. Popes use constitutions for very important things, such as to promote new editions of the Missal, or to reshape the Roman Curia, or establish how popes are to be elected, or to set up ecclesial structures, in other words, things that are really important for the very heart of the Church. Benedict XVI uh, issued recently an apostolic constitution called Angliconorum Cetibus to set up a structure within the church for Anglicans who wanted to come into unity with the Catholic Church. Now, the historical context for Pope John's document, his apostolic constitution, is going to be explained by John himself. Suffice to say that in the latter half of the 20th century, as modernism began to creep back out of its dark hole and the liturgical movement was gaining impetus, the value of Latin and Greek was being challenged. Latin and Greek wasn't necessarily being run down, but let's just say that the modern tongues of vernacular were being built up and promoted with uh, sometimes hyperbolic praise. A vernacular, the word, by the way, comes from the Latin word, for a domestic, that is, a household servant, one who was born in the master's house rather than somewhere else. And thus, these servants or slaves would speak the, the local dialect, the dialect of the region, the vernacular. So vernacular, uh, distinguished from Latin, uh, vernacular would be the national or the regional tongue rather than Latin, which is a universal language. 
Now, I'm going to read Veterum Sapientia, and I'll have a little Latin here so that you can hear the sound of the sonorous sentences with their well-crafted rhythmic endings, which students of Latin know are called clausuli. The Latin of Veterum Sapientia, by the way, is very polished, as you might suspect in a document about the importance and beauty of Latin. Uh, But here are a few things to listen for, tune your ear for as I read. Uh, Note that uh, Pope John says that Christ came in the fullness of time, which this means he came into the world at a precise pointed time and in a precise place, according to a plan. Now, the world by this point had its cultures, and God considered that the existing cultures were ready for the coming of the Lord, and then the Lord would, he used these cultures and brought forth from them something entirely new while the cultures remained perennially valid. In other words, he gave true wisdom to the wisdom of the past, a wisdom that no earthly, uh, merely mortal person could give. John says that Latin has certain qualities which are like the church herself. Latin is universal, immutable, and non-vernacular. John points out the effect of Latin on the minds of the young uh, people who are being educated uh, need, a, need a structure for their minds. And uh, more and more today, educators with open minds are, are finding, uh, even in public schools, especially in public schools and not so much in church schools, that the introduction of Latin uh, boosts test scores and reading comprehension and also has all sorts of benefits. Uh, the homeschooling movement, for example, is very dedicated to uh, uh, or influenced by an essay written by the great writer, writer Dorothy Sayers. I think it was back in the 50s she wrote this. She saw what was happening in education. Things were falling apart. And she suggested a modification of the old medieval system of, uh, going back to the ancient world, a system of education called the trivium and quadrivium, uh, formed especially, however, around Latin as kind of a a glue to hold everything together. But I digress. Uh, Pope John lays down the law uh, and writes in such a way as to leave absolutely no doubt what he intended. He wanted this to be obeyed, uh, but it wasn't obeyed for the most part. Uh, When he speaks of an academy for Latin, uh, there was one indeed, set up in Rome, so he was obeyed there, and that academy still exists at the university called the Silesianum, but really, um, you know, this kind of thing isn't really given given a whole lot of energy these days. Uh, and academics in Rome and elsewhere uh, in seminaries and so forth are taught uh, entirely in the vernacular now. In Rome, of course, the Italian is used, Italian after a fashion in the case of some non-Italian professors. Listen also for John talking about the liturgy and clarity of the faith. Uh, In the years following the near total destruction of Latin in our schools and in our churches, there has been a lot of fuzzy thinking and uh, even dangerous and confused ideas uh, foisted on God's people and on our liturgical worship, our liturgies become divisive and chaotic in many instances, precisely the opposite of what John was trying to preserve. Uh, 
Note also that John comments about excessive verbiage. He could be talking about this introduction. Documents uh, from the church have gotten longer and longer over the decades uh, since the vernacular is being used. I imagine that the introduction of word processors didn't help either. But once upon a time, all church documents were composed in Latin, not just translated into Latin after they were written in some modern language. No, they were composed in Latin. And that meant that the writers had to be precise and concise. You couldn't just rattle on like I'm doing because Latin doesn't help you do that. You have to actually know what you mean and understand it before you set pen to paper. Moreover, uh, listen for John's use of the word continuity, which has come into prominence with Pope Benedict's famous address to the Roman Curia in 2005. And finally, uh, listen to how John talks about Latin and the priesthood. Uh, he's really serious about this, and I think that we have seen, um, if we look back over the last 50 years or so, we can see that John was right. Let's now hear Veterum Sapientia, huh? the promotion of Latin. The document, an apostolic constitution, was promulgated on the 22nd of February, 1962. Veterum sapientia, in Grecorum Romanorumque inclusa litris, itemque clarissima antiquorum popolorum monumenta doctrine, quasi quedam prenuncia aurora sunt habenda evangelice veritatis, quam filius dei, gratiae disciplineque arbiter et magister, illuminator ac deductor generis humani, his nunciavit in terris. Ecclesia in patres et doctores, in prestantissimis vetustormilorum temporum memoriis, quanda maniuverunt animorum preparationem ad supernas suscipiendas divitias, quas Christus Iesus in dispensatione plenitudinis temporum, cum mortalibus communicavit, ex quo illud factum esse patet, ut in ordine rerum Christianarum instaurato nihil sane perierit, quod verum et justum et nobile, denique pulcrum ante acta secula peperisent. Quam obrem, ecclesia sancta, eius modi sapiens. The wisdom of the ancient world, enshrined in Greek and Roman literature, and the truly memorable teaching of ancient peoples, served surely to herald the dawn of the gospel, which God's Son, the judge and teacher of grace and truth, the light and guide of the human race, proclaimed on earth. Such was the view of the church fathers and doctors. In these outstanding literary monuments of antiquity, they recognized man's spiritual preparation for the supernatural riches which Jesus Christ communicated to mankind to give history its fulfillment. Thus, the inauguration of Christianity did not mean the obliteration of man's past achievements. Nothing was lost that was in any way true, just, noble, and beautiful. 
The Church has ever held the literary evidences of this wisdom in the highest esteem. She values especially the Greek and Latin languages in which wisdom itself is cloaked, as it were, in a vesture of gold. She has likewise welcomed the use of other venerable languages which flourished in the East, for these too have had no little influence on the progress of humanity and civilization. By their use in sacred liturgies and in versions of Holy Scripture, they have remained in force in certain regions even to the present day, bearing constant witness to the living voice of antiquity. But amid this variety of languages, a primary place must surely be given to that language which had its origins in Latium, and later proved so admirable a means for the spreading of Christianity throughout the West. And since in God's special providence this language united so many nations together under the authority of the Roman Empire, and that for so many centuries, it also became the rightful language of the apostolic see. Preserved for posterity, it proved to be a bond of unity for the Christian peoples of Europe. Of its very nature, Latin is most suitable for promoting every form of culture among peoples. It gives rise to no jealousies. It does not favor any one nation, but presents itself with equal impartiality to all, and is equally acceptable to all. Nor must we overlook the characteristic nobility of Latin's formal structure, its concise, varied, and harmonious style, full of majesty and dignity, makes for singular clarity and impressiveness of expression. For these reasons, the Apostolic See has always been at pains to preserve Latin, deeming it worthy of being used in the exercise of her teaching authority as the splendid vesture of her heavenly doctrine and sacred laws. She further requires her sacred ministers to use it, for by doing so they are the better able, wherever they may be, to acquaint themselves with the mind of the Holy See on any matter, and communicate the more easily with Rome and with one another. Thus the knowledge and use of this language, so intimately bound up with the Church's life, is important not so much on cultural or literary grounds as for religious reasons. These are the words of our predecessor, Pius XI, who conducted a scientific inquiry into this whole subject, and indicated three qualities of the Latin language which harmonize to a remarkable degree with the Church's nature. For the Church, precisely because it embraces all nations, and is destined to endure to the end of time, of its very nature requires a language which is universal, immutable, and non-vernacular. Since every church must assemble round the Roman church, and since the supreme pontiffs have true episcopal power, ordinary and immediate, over each and every church, and each and every pastor, as well as over the faithful, of every rite and language, it seems particularly desirable that the instrument of mutual communication be uniform and universal, especially between the apostolic see and the churches which use the same Latin rite. When, therefore, the Roman pontiffs wish to instruct the Catholic world, or when the congregations of the Roman Curia handle matters or draw up decrees which concern the whole body of the faithful, they invariably make use of Latin, 
for this is a maternal voice acceptable to countless nations. Furthermore, the Church's language must not be only universal, but also immutable. Modern languages are liable to change, and no single one of them is superior to the others in authority. Thus, if the truths of the Catholic Church were entrusted to an unspecified number of them, the meaning of these truths, varied as they are, would not be manifested to every one with sufficient clarity and precision. There would, moreover, be no language which could serve as a common and constant norm by which to gauge the exact meaning of other renderings. But Latin is indeed such a language. It is set and unchanging. It has long since ceased to be affected by those alterations in the meaning of words which are the normal result of daily popular use. Certain Latin words, it is true, acquired new meanings as Christian teaching developed and needed to be explained and defended, but these new meanings have long since become accepted and firmly established. Finally, the Catholic Church has a dignity far surpassing that of every merely human society, for it was founded by Christ the Lord. It is altogether fitting, therefore, that the language it uses should be noble, majestic, and non-vernacular. In addition, the Latin language can be called truly Catholic. It has been consecrated through constant use by the Apostolic See, the mother and teacher of all churches, and must be esteemed a treasure of incomparable worth. It is a general passport to the proper understanding of the Christian writers of antiquity and the documents of the Church's teaching. It is also a most effective bond, binding the Church of today with that of the past and of the future in wonderful continuity. There can be no doubt as to the formative and educational value either of the language of the Romans or of great literature generally. It is a most effective training for the pliant minds of youth. It exercises, matures, and perfects the principal faculties of mind and spirit. It sharpens the wits and gives keenness of judgment. It helps the young mind to grasp things accurately and develop a true sense of values. It is also a means for teaching highly intelligent thought and speech. It will be quite clear from these considerations why the Roman pontiffs have so often extolled the excellence and importance of Latin, and why they have prescribed its study and use by the secular and regular clergy, forecasting the dangers that would result from its neglect. And we also, impelled by the weightiest of reasons, the same as those which prompted our predecessors and provincial synods, are fully determined to restore this language to its position of honor, and to do all we can to promote its study and use. The employment of Latin has recently been contested in many quarters, and many are asking what the mind of the apostolic see is in this matter. We have therefore decided to issue the timely directives contained in this document, so as to ensure that the ancient and uninterrupted use of Latin be maintained and, where necessary, restored. We believe that we made our own views on this subject sufficiently clear when we said to a number of eminent Latin scholars, 
it is a matter of regret that so many people, unaccountably dazzled by the marvelous progress of science, are taking it upon themselves to oust or restrict the study of Latin and other kindred subjects. Yet in spite of the urgent need for science, our own view is that the very contrary policy should be followed. The greatest impression is made in the mind by those things which correspond more closely to man's nature and dignity, and therefore the greatest zeal should be shown in the acquisition of whatever educates and ennobles the mind. Otherwise, poor mortal creatures may well become like the machines they build, cold, hard, and devoid of love. With the foregoing considerations in mind, to which we have given careful thought, we now, in the full consciousness of our office, and in virtue of our authority, decree and command the following. 1. Bishops and superiors-general of religious orders shall take pains to ensure that in their seminaries and in their schools where adolescents are trained for the priesthood, all shall studiously observe the apostolic see's decision in this matter, and obey these, our prescriptions, most carefully. 2. In the exercise of their paternal care, they shall be on their guard lest any one under their jurisdiction, eager for revolutionary changes, writes against the use of Latin in the teaching of the higher sacred studies or in the liturgy, or through prejudice, makes light of the Holy See's will in this regard, or interprets it falsely. 3. As is laid down in Canon Law, Canon 1364, or commanded by our predecessors, before church students begin their ecclesiastical studies proper, they shall be given a sufficiently lengthy course of instruction in Latin by highly competent masters, following a method designed to teach them the language with utmost accuracy, and that, too, for this reason. Lest later on, when they begin their major studies, they are unable by reason of their ignorance of the language to gain a full understanding of the doctrines or take part in those scholastic disputations which constitute so excellent an intellectual training for young men in the defense of the faith we wish the same rule to apply to those whom God calls to the priesthood at a more advanced age, and whose classical studies have either been neglected or conducted too superficially. No one is to be admitted to the study of philosophy or theology, except he be thoroughly grounded in this language and capable of using it. 4. Wherever the study of Latin has suffered partial eclipse through the assimilation of the academic program to that which obtains in state public schools, with the result that the instruction given is no longer so thorough and well-grounded as formerly, there the traditional method of teaching this language shall be completely restored. Such is our will, and there should be no doubt in any one's mind about the necessity of keeping a strict watch over the course of studies followed by church students, and that not only as regards the number and kinds of subjects they study, but also as regards the length of time devoted to the teaching of these subjects. Should circumstances of time and place demand the addition of other subjects to the curriculum besides the usual ones, then either the course of studies must be lengthened, or these additional subjects must be condensed, 
or their study relegated to another time. 5. In accordance with numerous previous instructions, the major sacred sciences shall be taught in Latin, which, as we know from many centuries of use, must be considered most suitable for explaining with the utmost facility and clarity the most difficult and profound ideas and concepts. For apart from the fact that it has long since been enriched with a vocabulary of appropriate and unequivocal terms, best calculated to safeguard the integrity of the Catholic faith, it also serves in no slight measure to prune away useless verbiage. Hence, professors of these sciences in universities or seminaries are required to speak Latin and to make use of textbooks written in Latin. If ignorance of Latin makes it difficult for some to obey these instructions, they shall gradually be replaced by professors who are suited to this task. Any difficulties that may be advanced by students or professors must be overcome by the patient insistence of the bishops or religious superiors and the good will of the professors. 6. Since Latin is the Church's living language, it must be adequate to daily increasing linguistic requirements. It must be furnished with new words that are apt and suitable for expressing modern things, words that will be uniform and universal in their application, and constructed in conformity with the genius of the ancient Latin tongue. Such was the method followed by the Sacred Fathers and the best writers among the scholastics. To this end, therefore, we commissioned the sacred congregation of seminaries and universities to set up a Latin academy staffed by an international body of Latin and Greek professors. The principal aim of this academy, like the national academies founded to promote their respective languages, will be to superintend the proper development of Latin, augmenting the Latin lexicon where necessary with words which conform to the particular character and color of the language. It will also conduct schools for the study of Latin of every era, particularly the Christian one. The aim of these schools will be to impart a fuller understanding of Latin and the ability to use it and to write it with proper elegance. They will exist for those who are destined to teach Latin in seminaries and ecclesiastical colleges, or to write decrees and judgments, or conduct correspondence in the ministries of the Holy See, diocesan curias, and the offices of religious orders. 7. Latin is closely allied to Greek, both in formal structure and in the importance of its extant writings. Hence, as our predecessors have frequently ordained, future ministers of the altar must be instructed in Greek in the lower and middle schools. Thus, when they come to study the higher sciences, and especially if they are aiming for a degree in sacred scripture or theology, they will be enabled to follow the Greek sources of scholastic philosophy and understand them correctly, and not only these, but also the original texts of sacred scripture, the liturgy, and the sacred fathers. 8. We further commission the sacred congregation of seminaries and universities to prepare a syllabus for the teaching of Latin, which all shall faithfully observe. The syllabus will be designed to give those who follow it an adequate understanding of the language and its use. 
Episcopal boards may indeed rearrange this syllabus if circumstances warrant, but they must never curtail it or alter its nature. Ordinaries may not take it upon themselves to put their own proposals into effect until these have been examined and approved by the sacred congregation. Finally, in virtue of our apostolic authority, we will and command that all the decisions, decrees, proclamations, and recommendations of this our Constitution remain firmly established and ratified, notwithstanding anything to the contrary, however worthy of special note. Given at Rome at St. Peter's, on the feast of St. Peter's throne, on the 22nd day of February, in the year 1962, the fourth of our pontificate. Extremum que hac nostra constitutione statuimus, decrebimus, ediximus, mandavimus, rata ea omnia et firma consistere et permanere autoritate nostra apostolica volumus et iubemus, contrariis quibus libet non obstantibus, etiam peculiari mencioni dignis. Datum Rome abud sanctum Petrum, die vigesimo secundo mensis februarii, cathedre sancte Petri apostoli sacro, anno millesimo non centesimo sexagesimo secundo pontificatus nostri quarto. was Veterum Sapientia of Pope John XXIII back in 1962. Now keep in mind that the Second Vatican Council said that Latin was to be preserved in our worship. The Second Vatican Council said that modern languages could be used for some reasons. Not the other way around. Latin was to be preserved. Also, the council said that pastors of souls were obliged to make sure that their flocks could both sing and speak the parts pertaining to them, both in Latin and the mother tongue. Well, when you go to your parish church on Sunday, I ask you if pay attention to see if you're using any Latin. Uh, I want to go back to a point about formation for the priesthood and Latin. The present Code of Canon Law says in Canon uh, 249, that seminarians are to be very well trained. Bene caliant in Latin. That, that verb caleo, caleo with two L's, not one L, which means having to do with warming things up, but caleo with two L's. That's the word we get callous, a callous from, like what you get in your hands when you've been shoveling a lot or carrying heavy things or working hard, you build up calluses. Calluses means that, that, that you've done something repeatedly and become probably good at what you're doing. So seminarians 
are to be bene caliant, very well trained in Latin. And that has not been obeyed, even slightly in most seminaries. And yet, uh, during ordinations, uh, someone, uh, usually the rector of a seminary, someone in charge of formation of seminarians, has to stand up in front of the ordaining bishop and attest that the men were well trained. Now think about this in light of, for example, uh, Benedict XVI's Summorum Pontificum, uh, which concerns the use of the older preconciliar form of the Roman Rite. He said in that document there are two forms of the Roman Rite, the ordinary and the extraordinary form. They're side by side. There should be a mutual enrichment, kind of a gravitational bull between them, etc., etc. Now, can people who have to attest that seminarians are really, you know, are well-trained, well-formed, ready for ordination, can they really attest that they are well-trained if they don't know both parts, both forms of their right? if they don't know the older half of the rite, uh, if they don't know the, the form of Holy Mass and the sacraments with the actual history and track record, the one that produced centuries and centuries of saints. Um, and, you know, this wasn't just a passing idea either because the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei in 2011 issued a, a, an instruction about the application of the provisions of Benedict's Summorum Pontificum, and it says, uh, it has a paragraph on training in seminaries, and it says in paragraph 21, and I quote, ordinaries are, that means bishops, basically, ordinaries are asked to offer their clergy the possibility of acquiring adequate preparation for celebrations in the forma extraordinaria. This applies also to seminaries, where future priests should be given proper formation, including study of Latin, and where pastoral needs suggested the opportunity to learn the forma extraordinaria uh, of the Roman rite. Close quote. Now, I think that paragraph is a little weak, but nevertheless, the concept is there. They need to be trained in Latin. This is an identity thing, too. It's not just for the practice use of Latin to sharpen your mind and to make it possible uh, for you to read source, you know, primary source documents. There are other dimensions, uh, aspects of the loss of Latin, which I think are hurting us badly. For example, we who belong to the Latin church but never hear or use the language of our rite and of our church, are we missing something, some important dimension of our identity as Catholics? I think for a long time, Catholics have been losing sight of who they are. And if we are confused about who we are as Catholics, about who we are in continuity with other Catholics across the centuries and across the globe, then perhaps with this fuzzy notion we won't be able to have the impact in the public square which we need to be able to have, especially in a time when as a civilization we are losing our bearings and drifting into dangerous waters indeed. Latin isn't the entire solution for this, but I think that the use of Latin could be extremely useful in helping us revitalize our Catholic identity so that we know who we are and therefore we have that much more to contribute to the spheres of the world around us 
which we are called, each by our own vocation, to influence, to shape, to form. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Please come and visit at the blog, Father Z's blog. What does the prayer really say is what it has been called for years. That's WDTPRS.com, Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. You can just Google Father Z and you'll find me right away. So until next time, please pray for me as I will for you. <laughs>